from The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ and A. Today, Chella Mann is here. Chella is an artist, an actor. He played the superhero Jericho on the DC show Titans. He's also an author with a new book out that is called Continuum. And as we talk about, he is a person of many identities. Chella is deaf, trans, genderqueer, pansexual, Chinese, Jewish, the list goes on. And also, Chella is young. He's just at the beginning of his 20s. And I find that he embodies this new and deeply rational and self-assured way of thinking about gender and sexuality. One that sometimes feels shocking to someone like me, who is maybe a community elder at this point. I don't know. I'm going to call the Medicare office. But while I do that, please enjoy this interview with Chella Mann. So before reading the book, my assumption was that since you have cochlear implants, that you would have perfect 100% hearing and never need to think about it ever again. And so obviously that's not the case. You say you can hear somewhat. Can you describe a bit more about what that somewhat is? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a huge misconception. I always kind of compare it to, have you ever taken a video outside when it's windy? Yeah, you know how like when you play it back later, how that wind sounds? That's just how I hear wind in general. So everything is very mechanical. I always used to say I don't have any more hear human hearing necessarily. And it's just very like mechanical. It's just like asking you, like, what is it like to see? You know, how do you describe that to someone? That's the best comparison I think I can give you. Since you do rely on reading lips, like are video calls like this challenging? Yes, always. <laughs> It's a lot of energy typically and helpful if you have live captioning. So if you have a deaf or hard of hearing person next time, having live captioning is super helpful. And Google Hangouts actually has that just embedded in, in it. Holding it on those platforms is typically what I usually do. But right now, I actually feel pretty comfortable because I'm in a quiet environment. Your lips are clear. You have that fancy mic. So I'm pretty good. Okay, let me know if that changes too. And that's a great to know for next time also. So thank you. Of course, yeah. With the cochlear implants, I know that not every person has them. Was that a choice that you made or were you too young that it was made for you? That's a great question. A lot of kids don't get the choice, but my parents intentionally did a lot of research about the controversy within the deaf community about cochlear implants. And they wanted me to have the decision myself. So for a long time growing up, I would be, I think they asked me like once every single year at least, you know, like, do you, how do you feel about getting cochlear implants now? And I would always be deeply opposed to it. Looking back, I think it was probably due to able, internalized ableism and just wanting to be autonomous and independent, not needing help, etc. But it got to a point where because I was immersed in a hearing environment, I literally just could not communicate and I was starting to become more and more isolated with no one deaf around me and anyone who's signed. So it kind of did feel like my only choice at that moment. So when I was 12 years old, that's when I decided to get my first cochlear implant, which is on my left side. And then when I was 14, I got one on my right, which unfortunately failed. And I had to get the surgery again when I was 16. I mean, we talk all the time about community and like the queer and trans community, but in terms of like the deaf community, you just had zero at that time, it sounds like? No, I really didn't have anyone growing up. It wasn't until I moved to New York 
And working at them, actually, they paired me in a video with Nao DeMarco. And that was really the first time that I got to have a connection, a deep connection with a deaf person. Because I don't, in my book, I actually mentioned I go to deaf sleepaway camps and I try to go out of my way to meet deaf people. But there just was never that connection. And even if we both wanted there to be, there was a language barrier because I wasn't taught American Sign Language growing up. So what were those things that you had to figure out on your own? Was it like how to advocate for yourself and how to like do those sorts of things? All of the above, definitely. I mean, I didn't really have people to teach me that. So it was a lot of trial and error and patience and perseverance. Up until, you know, now I have a lot of different ways to cope and navigate the world as a deaf person. But unfortunately, my parents weren't able to give me those tools or anyone else around me. But there are a lot of deaf people who are even like generationally deaf and are taught that immediately and just like know how to navigate the world, which I think is incredible. Talking to Niall, who is a, I think, I believe he's fourth generation deaf. It's just an entirely different experience, you know. It's, there's just a whole continuum, of course, of being deaf. And because of the cochlear implants, in a way it makes your disability visible is that helpful so people know, or does that also create issues? I don't think people really understand what they're looking at, to be honest. Uh, I have a lot of people come up and ask me about, like, where I got that Bluetooth earphone, or sometimes, like, just compliment me on this, like, jewelry. I do have jewelry that I designed, actually, to go with my implant, but it's not my implant. So a lot of times, you know, if people do notice it, they don't know what it is. And then most of the time, honestly, people don't because it tends to blend into my hair color. I often feel like even if I am wearing my cochlear implants, my disability is still invisible. The main times I feel like it isn't is when I'm signing. And that's very clear that I'm deaf because that is the stereotype that people often associate with being deaf. Right. The funny thing, too, about sound and like that sense is that I can close my eyes and not see anything, but I can't close my ears, but in a way you kind of can. It's a superpower. I love it. Yeah. Like how often do you remove them? Oh, if there's a baby crying on the plane, boom, I'm out. Whenever I was taking tests growing up, you know, total concentration. Sometimes when I'm drawing, it's honestly more comfortable for me to be completely deaf. But in some cases, I just can't because of the environment, the hearing environment and the world we live in is very hearing based. So I'll have them in. But there is obviously ways to navigate the world without ever even hearing a single bit of sound. But for me personally, as much as I can, honestly, I take them off. It feels more natural to me. So in terms of gender, at, at what point growing up did you start to feel like, hmm, these she, her pronouns are not quite the right fit for me? For as long as I can remember. I apparently would tell my mom as soon as I could speak that I wanted to be a boy and I wanted her to call me he. So even before you like consciously had the language, you actually did have the language? Yeah, because I don't think it's actually about the language. I think it's about the feeling. It's about who you are inside. And language is something that allows you to articulate what you're feeling inside, but you always already have that, who you are inside. Language comes after. And so early on, though, you were really drawn to traditionally masculine things. It was all about being a boy. When, when did you realize that your gender was more expansive than that? I think I realized just because 
thinking about the gender binary in general is completely ridiculous. Like, I recently heard one of my friends, Woke, explain that out of all the colors in the world, what if someone was just like, actually, there's just two colors? How and why would someone ever do that when there's so much more and so much more diversity and things to experience and just life, you know, and, and people to be? Why would you ever want to choose one? And also, I genuinely believe that we're all non-binary to an extent because we just don't all fit this stereotype. Like, oh, you like blue? Okay, you're a boy. Oh, you like this kind of fabric hanging on your body? Okay, that means this. Like, no, we just, I just want to discard all the limitations and just allow us to be who we are, you know? That's the goal. That's the end goal. I mean, I think that for as much as the public has started to talk about gender nonconformity like right now and like label it, we've seen gender nonconforming people our entire lives in every single culture like around the country, not even where you live. Yeah, I mean, the world just, wherever you go, there's going to be people who try to categorize you in order to understand who you are. When in reality, like these categorizations are helpful to an extent if they help you connect you to your community and connect you to the identities that you're searching for. But past that, it can turn toxic and people can just start gatekeeping or limiting who you're supposed to be. So it's just a huge balance that we all need to remember. And so not every trans person needs or wants to medically transition. Why was it important to you? For me, it just felt it, you know, like from the moment Ever since I was a little kid, when my mom would tell me like about puberty, I was like, oh, I don't want that. <laughs> like, that sounds terrible. I just always knew like the way, the trajectory in which my body was naturally going to develop didn't fit what I had in mind for my own future. I mean, we live in this queer bubble in New York City where we know that gender identity is different than gender performance or gender presentation. And so you can be genderqueer and present masculine or feminine or anyway. Do you find that the larger population now understands that more and more? Or on the whole, are they more just like, Chella had top surgery, he wears pants, he's a man? It really depends. I can't generalize, but I do get misgendered quite often, I will say. I have it in my bio that I identify genderqueer, but it really depends. I think people need to remember just not to place stereotypes onto other people. When you say you're misgendered, are you saying like with pronouns as well? I think that people often believe that I want to be perceived as a man, as a binary man, and that's not true. I like dressing the way I dress, which happens to be stereotypically masculine, which is often associated with binary men, but I will never feel like a man. The only thing man about me is my last name. Which I was shocked to find out was not a chosen name. <laughs> no, it's my grandpa's name from Hong Kong. In terms of like laying claim to your body and changing your relationship to it, how important in that were tattoos? Mm, so important. You know, I feel like before I was able to access hormones and top surgery, tattoos were this way I could reclaim my body and redesign it before that. But in addition, also being an artist, of course I want autonomy to doodle all over myself. And so that's essentially what I did. As soon as I could legally, I got my first tattoo on my 18th birthday. And every single one I've gotten since then has such deep meaning that I don't think I'm actually ever going to get any more. I think that I always consider top surgery to be my last tattoo. 
Do you consider top surgery to be as significant as your tattoos? Absolutely, absolutely. Wow. Because, you know, what are tattoos essentially? Tattoos are something that you intentionally choose to have on your body that means something. Sometimes, to some people, <laughs> they don't mean anything. So it depends. With top surgery, I knew that I was getting a double incision surgery and that I was going to have these two scars. And there's something intentional that I chose and I wanted and they symbolize so much. They symbolize how far I've come, the fact that I'm still alive, what this means for my future and who I am now. So I, I consider them tattoos. You know? Wow. And so what was your first tattoo, if you don't mind me asking? Yeah, my first tattoo was actually when I was 14. You said you waited till it was legal. Well, I was <laughs> I waited for my first like shop tattoo until I was 18. But when I was 14, that's a different story. I did a stick and poke on my right hip. It's three dots because I've always signed my artwork with three dots. I never really understood why people would want their names on their artwork in the front. I just feel like that takes away from the art. So instead, I always tried to incorporate three dots so people would somehow know it was me without me just like slapping my name on the front. I was like, okay, I signed all my artwork with three dots. Why not have it on myself as well? Because I am art. No, I mean, that's what I really decided was my first. So it looks pretty bad and faded, but it's perfect. I would never go over it. I thought it was really interesting, too, that you wrote that my disability was interpreted as a medical issue, producing conversations and resources. But when it came to my gender and sexuality, the world went dark. Yes. And was that from like the very beginning of you like opening up and sharing about your gender and sexuality? No, I mean, it was way before that. It was when I didn't have any words to be able to even open up and share about it. It was when I felt lost and I just did not know who I was suppo supposed to be because there was no one around me that looked like my future. I mean, to that, you tell a really funny story about looking up terms on the internet and like finding out like, oh, there's this thing called gender fluid or gender queer. There's this thing called pansexual. And for me, I mean, I mean I'm in my early 30s. I'm not that much older, but growing up, the internet was so different that in order to look something up, I would have had to go to a library and probably ask a librarian, hey, do you have books on this thing called gay? And that just is too scary. Yeah. My generation walked around wondering, am I the only person who's ever felt like this in the history of the world? <laughs> yeah, that's definitely a different era. I've always been so grateful for the internet for a multitude of reasons. We could be here like all day. I mean, it's also very trendy to hate on labels, and I get why, but you say that finding these labels let you know that you weren't alone and that more importantly, you had a massive community behind you. Exactly, yeah. Finding these labels when I was 16 in my central Pennsylvania bedroom in the middle of like white suburbia changed my life. You know, seeing people talk about this online when there was no one tangible around me, it, it was it was such a gift. Correct me if I'm wrong, but after you found these labels, you then like talked to your parents the very next day, right? Yeah. No, yeah, I did immediately. I couldn't, I, I realized now that I had the words, there was no waiting. There was no point in waiting any longer. I, I just like couldn't even hold it in. Even if I was gonna try, I just felt like it was gonna explode. So was that because you also knew that your parents would more than likely have a positive response? Yes, I was very lucky that, you know, I don't think they were shocked, I will say, because of, you know, I just really fit that classic narrative of being a tomboy and just like 
falling into a certain queer stereotype. So I knew from the ways they had already accepted those things to an extent, as well as the way they have supported their own friends who are queer, like in college, like their stories about that. I knew I would be okay. I mean, I found that really shocking, There's how supportive they were all along. And I think that it's like so sad and telling that I was shocked. It is. It is. And I, I mean, I think about that like so often that it's this huge privilege that my life would not nearly be the same way if they had not accepted me. I'm so grateful for them, my parents, but also like even like my bubby and my grandparents, like on my dad's side. And it blows my mind because I just, I don't know how I got so lucky. Like I, I genuinely don't know, but I did. And I think that's also why I feel a responsibility to continue telling my story and pushing the boundaries because I was lucky. I am lucky. I have this privilege to be able to tell my story and have this support system simultaneously. And so I want to use it. And so you have been cataloging and documenting your transition for the last like four or so years. Do you think you would have felt comfortable being so public and open had you not had that support from your family? Um, I will say the person who has also been documenting everything is my partner, Mary V. And she has been the most incredible chosen family. I don't know what it would have been like. I can't say, but I know it would have been harder. I know that it would have been more mentally exhausting to have my parents and to have found someone like Mary V be in my life, it'd be a different story if they reacted differently. I think too, we talk so much about the challenges for dating as trans people. And like, those are conversations that like need to be in public, but it's also good to show like concrete examples like you, that you can find love and be loved. Oh my gosh. Yes. There are so many people who will love you, regardless of whether you're trans or not. It's about you, you know? And people will not objectify you and literally just see that part of you. Like, yes, that's a huge part and it shapes who you are, but you're still you. You're gonna find someone. Like, they're not just like someone. There are so many people out there that that will, will love you. I swear, like, mark my words. So you were posting online, you know, just like documenting your documenting yourself for yourself when did that go from that to becoming you know, like a public person who's seen as a spokesperson well it never changed to be honest i still do it for myself first and foremost if it wasn't for myself i think there'd be a problem with the content i think that it wouldn't be authentic so to this day every post and things that i say are very, very intentional and for a variety of different reasons. And things just kind of snowballed. And essentially other people put that label on me of being a spokesperson. And I definitely have stories to tell, but I'm not the spokesperson. I never have been and I never will be because I'm just literally one person out of so many people. I think that a side effect of like the internet and social media is that now you don't need to consent to being a spokesperson to be seen as a spokesperson? I consent to being seen. I consent to my story being consumed by others and they can choose to see me however they want, but I don't see myself that way. With being seen, do you find that people and society 
weight certain identities more that in certain places you're seen as just trans and other places you're seen as like just Chinese and things like that? Absolutely. It definitely, your identity, what people highlight about your identity shifts depending on the environment you're in. That's true with anyone. And, and so it's not an issue, it's more of like a fact? Is that what you're saying? If it's an issue, I'm in the wrong place. I guess I was thinking about it because you talk really movingly about existing in like the in-between of many places in terms of like gender and being deaf, you're Jewish and Chinese. I guess I'm wondering, like, do you still feel that way in most spaces or have you found ones where you feel like totally comfortable? No, I'm definitely all of the above, but I'm also creative, passionate, empathetic, goofy, tired sometimes. Hungry. I'm a lot of different things, but one of those won't ever rise above. I just am all those things. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for taking the time to talk. Yeah, absolutely. Anna, that was Chella Man. Again, his new book is called Continuum, if you want to check that out. And then if you enjoyed this conversation, please help us to spread the word on social media. We're on there at LGBTQPod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. Those are amazing ways to connect and recommend guests. And also, quite frankly, when you help us to spread the word, that helps our show continue to grow. So thank you so much to everyone who does that. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next week with the incredible drag queen Eureka O'Hara, who is currently competing on RuPaul's Drag Race All-Stars Season 6. So next Tuesday, I will see you there. Bye.